Well, good afternoon. Is the sound okay for those of you in the back? Okay. I'm Robert Wuthno, the director of the Center for the Study of Religion and a faculty member here in the Sociology Department. So I want to welcome you to this afternoon's lecture. Uh, today's lecture is the first in a new series on religion and public affairs that the Center for the Study of Religion is offering through a gift from the Reynolds Trust. And I want to begin by thanking uh, Major Reynolds and his wife, Pam, for their support. Uh, Mr. Reynolds is a member of the class of 1956 and has remained a loyal friend of the university. The purpose of these lectures is to bring scholarly reflection on the intersection between religion and public life. I'm sure you would all agree that religion is a significant factor in the life of our nation and probably in the life of all nations. One can hardly think about the day's events in Iraq, for example, without seeing the role of religion. But too often, our knowledge of religion's role in public affairs is restricted to what we see on CNN or what we read in the New York Times. And too often, it is therefore limited to the events of the day, which are hardly digested before some new events overtake us. This is one of the reasons we have universities and one of the reasons we study history. Universities provide a place for sustained reflection long after the day's news is passed and for the formation of considered critical opinion. History helps us to do that. Although its lessons may have no immediate implications, it is through history that we gain distance from the present and in that distance, we are able to see our own world from a new perspective. Now, many aspects of the past are lost, except to those who lived in the past. But some events live on. They provide us with touchstones, touchstones to which we return again and again. The American Civil War is one of those events, and the life and presidency of Abraham Lincoln uh, is another. So we are thus very privileged to be able to bring today's lecture to you. And to introduce our speaker, I am delighted to present a person who is a distinguished historian, an authority on the Civil War, author of the Pulitzer Prize winning book, Battle Cry of Freedom, and a member of the History Department here at Princeton, James McPherson. Thanks, Bob. Those of you who have been in my courses here at Princeton know that my favorite historical person is Abraham Lincoln. So it's a very distinct pleasure for me to be able to introduce this afternoon Mark Knoll, who teaches at Wheaton College in Lincoln's home state of Illinois, and who is going to speak to us today on the topic of Lincoln's God. Professor Noel has taught at Wheaton since 1979. He is currently the McManus Professor of Christian Thought and Professor of History at that institution. His teaching and scholarship focus on the interaction of religion and culture in 18th and 19th century Anglo-American societies. 
This theme has been the principal subject of the 11 books he has written and another eight that he has edited or co-edited. Among this impressive output are two titles of particular interest in these parts, Princeton and the Republic, 1768 to 1822, and The Princeton Theology, 1812-1921. Professor Knowles' most recent book, published just last fall, is titled America's God, From Jonathan Edwards to Abraham Lincoln, which bookends two individuals with a Princeton connection. Edwards was president of the College of New Jersey briefly until his death in 1758, and he's buried here. And the College of New Jersey conferred an honorary degree on Abraham Lincoln in 1864. Thus, it is altogether fitting and proper that we should have a lecture here (laughs) on Lincoln's God. So please join me in welcoming Professor Mark Knowles. I'm grateful for that uh, kind introduction. It's always pleasant to visit uh, Princeton. I must say, uh, this morning, however, I was disappointed when I went to visit uh, old friends and teachers who, shall we say, are permanently resident in Princeton, uh, the cemetery gate was locked, so I could not uh, get in to visit these people. There is compensation, however, for there's a number of folk here who I had not anticipated seeing at this occasion, and I'm very pleased to have you in attendance. Abraham Lincoln was shot on Good Friday, the 14th of April, 1865. He died the next day. Four days later, at the lecture held annually in Concord, Massachusetts, to commemorate the start of the American Revolution, Ralph Waldo Emerson sketched a mystical apotheosis for Lincoln of the sort that soon became canonical. He said, there is a serene providence which rules the fate of nations, which makes little account of time, little of one generation or race, makes no account of disasters, conquers alike by what is called defeat or by what is called victory, thrusts aside enemy and obstruction, crushes everything immoral as inhuman, and obtains the ultimate triumph of the best race by the sacrifice of everything which resists the moral laws of the world. It makes its own instruments, creates the man for the time, trains him in poverty, inspires his genius, and arms him for the task. In Emerson's account, soon repeated by many others to this day, Lincoln was the one whom providence, or fate, or God, or fortune, had supplied to the United States in its hour of greatest need. He was the one whom higher powers guided as he led the nation through bloody trial toward its destiny as a beacon light of liberty to the world. Yet even as this grand myth of corporate salvation took shape with Lincoln as the main agent of divine will, other eulogizers turned to address not so much the transcendent meaning of Lincoln, but the engagement by Lincoln himself with the transcendent. So it was that before the Lincoln funeral train reached Springfield, Illinois on May 3rd, the battle of the biographers had begun. That battle, too, has not ceased to this day. In it, the question of Lincoln's religion has always been a central puzzle. One of the first biographies rushed into print came from the pen of Josiah Holland, editor of a Republican newspaper in Springfield, Massachusetts, whose memorial address, like Emerson's on April 19th, encouraged the Boston publisher to commission a full life. 
Holland traveled to Illinois in May of that same year and spoke to some who knew Lincoln. The biography was out the next year and almost immediately sold 80,000 copies. Holland, a pious person himself, acknowledged that Lincoln had never joined a church. He nonetheless portrayed Lincoln as a serious Christian who had been reared in the faith by an angel mother and who had testified persuasively in both Illinois and Washington to faith in Jesus Christ. Holland stressed particularly that Lincoln's religion had been deepened by a reliance on God called forth by the terrible crises of his presidency. He also suggested that the shock of death at home of two young sons and then of tens of thousands in the war had driven Lincoln to deeper dependence on God. In describing Lincoln's personal faith, Holland drew especially on an interview with Newton Bateman, who had served as the Illinois superintendent of education during Lincoln's last year in Springfield. According to what Bateman told Holland in May 1865, the superintendent had enjoyed an extensive conversation with Lincoln in October 1860 that dealt mostly with religion. As Bateman recalled this conversation, Lincoln had said, I know there is a God and that he hates injustice and slavery. I see the storm coming and I know that his hand is in it. If he has a place and work for me, and I think he has, I believe I am ready. I am nothing, but truth is everything. I know I am right because I know that liberty is right, for Christ teaches it and Christ is God. I have told them that a house divided against itself cannot stand, and Christ and reason say the same, and they will find it so. Senator Douglas don't care whether slavery is voted up or voted down, but God cares, and humanity cares, and I care, and with God's help I shall not fail. I may not see the end, but the end will come, and I shall be vindicated, and these men will find that they have not read their Bibles aright. When Bateman responded that he did not think that Lincoln's Springfield friends knew he held such views, Lincoln supposedly replied, I am obliged to appear different to them, but I think more on these subjects than upon all others, and I have done so for years, and I am willing that you should know it. A year after Holland's biography appeared came the first of many other books repeating his picture of a pious president, Z.A. Mudge's The Forest Boy from the American Sunday School Union. Although this book went so far as to criticize Lincoln for never making a public profession of his faith, it, like so many to follow, likewise portrayed him as an individual of deep Orthodox Christian belief. To William Herndon, Lincoln's law partner in Springfield, for 21 years, these portraits were a very bad joke. Spurred into action, especially by what he considered Holland's effete Eastern whitewash, Herndon ransacked his own memory and began to interview others who had known Lincoln as a boy in Indiana, a young man in New Salem, or a respected lawyer in Springfield. Through many ups and downs in his own later life, Herndon pursued reminiscences of Lincoln almost until his own death in 1891. By December 1866, however, Herndon had secured enough material to begin a series of lectures in Springfield. One of his central purposes was to set straight the record on Lincoln's religion. His challenge to Holland and Holland's pious imitators was electrifying. Far from being a man of heartfelt Christian piety, Herndon maintained that Lincoln was at best a deist, who, though perhaps believing in some kind of a general God, had no time for the conventional beliefs or practices of churchly faith. Herndon was convinced that close-up observations validated his conclusions beyond the shadow of a doubt. Had he not spent many Sunday mornings in his office with Lincoln, and often Lincoln's boys, 
while Mary Lincoln went by herself to the local Presbyterian church, had not those mornings been devoted uh, entirely to non-religious pursuits, talking law, swapping tales, and doing as much damage control as possible as the Lincoln boys, never reproved by their father, wrecked havoc upon the books, papers, and furnishings of their office. Moreover, had not Herndon himself seen and had confirmed by the testimony of judges, lawyers, clerks, and clients how Lincoln lived on Illinois' Eighth Judicial Circuit. On the circuit, Lincoln had all the time in the world for telling stories, many of them not repeatable in mixed company, studying the law or Euclid, arranging and arguing cases. But he had never, or all but never, talked about or visibly practiced the Christian faith. Many of Lincoln's Illinois colleagues shared Herndon's views and made use of his research. One of them, Ward Hill Lehman, wrote a biography that used Herndon's collections extensively. Lehman maintained that the secret of Lincoln's melancholy lay precisely in the absence of faith. The fatal misfortunes of his life, wrote Lehman, was the influence of New Salem, which enlisted him on the side of unbelief. Lehman's reference to Lincoln's early life in the village of New Salem was especially telling in light of what Herndon had been told by informants who knew Lincoln during the years there, 1831 to 1837. According to them, Lincoln read and promoted the infidel works of Tom Paine, the Comte de Volney, and Voltaire. He scoffed openly at such orthodox Christian doctrines as the virgin birth and everlasting life. He wrote an essay on the universal salvation of all and perhaps another one on the unreliability of the Bible. Herndon was told that Lincoln's friends destroyed this one essay or maybe two essays in order to protect Lincoln's political future. In a word, from what Herndon had been told about the years before he knew Lincoln personally, and then from what Herndon had himself witnessed as Lincoln's longtime law partner, the picture of the pious Lincoln was a fabrication pure and simple. And so the battle was on. It has raged fiercely for more than a century. Even today, preachers for sermons near February 12th or personalities on Christian radio bemoaning the fall of the United States from earlier days of Christian conviction retell the stories illustrating Lincoln's deep piety. Although their number is not so great, secularist naysayers who know their Herndon sometimes fire right back. Both groups seem to feel that if only Lincoln could be enlisted on their side, whether of evangelical faith or naturalistic rationalism, it would amount to a great victory in today's culture wars. My purpose in this lecture cannot be to solve all the important questions concerning Lincoln's personal faith. The subject is simply too complex. What can be done, however, is first to sketch recent developments in Lincoln research that have enabled a more accurate picture to emerge. Second, it is possible to use the best results from the best Lincoln scholarship to underscore some well-documented conclusions. For example, that Lincoln's beliefs probably changed over time from near skepticism to something much closer to Christian orthodoxy. That despite these changes, Lincoln's personal religion seemed always to be marked by strands of determinism, rationalism, scripturalism, and providentialism. And that key circumstances and key relationships in both Illinois and Washington exerted a marked influence in shaping Lincoln's faith. Finally, examination of the historical material puts us in position to speculate briefly about why the question of Lincoln's religion has been so contentious and what that contention reveals about the place of religion in American public life, both then and now.
Because of the painstaking work of a determined band of rigorously empirical Lincoln scholars, students today at the start of the 21st century have a clearer grasp of the facts of Lincoln's life than was possible during his own lifetime and for more than a century after his death. Since early in the 20th century, when the labors of an avid Lincoln collector, William Barton, led the way, professional scholars and amateur historians have carried out a noble series of careful inquiries in the effort to differentiate myth from history. The path for biographers who hope to integrate a reliable picture of Lincoln's religion into more general accounts was marked out by Benjamin Thomas's still fresh Abraham Lincoln, a biography from 1953, and it has been followed by a number of unusually convincing works by, among others, Michael Burlingame, Philip Paladin, Douglas Wilson, Alan Gelzo, Ronald White, William Lee Miller, and Richard Carradine. Carefully discerning work featuring Lincoln's faith began with Barton's own The Soul of Abraham Lincoln in 1920, was advanced by the scholarship of William Wolfe and David Hine, and has now come to fruition in a recently published monograph by Stuart Winger. The best Lincoln scholarship, which forages widely for sources while yet testing those sources rigorously, has both stimulated and been undergirded by great labors of documentary verification. The carefully assembled collected works of Abraham Lincoln, 1953, led on eventually to Merle D. Peterson's carefully discerning Lincoln in American memory from 1994, and then to the great modern breakthroughs in Lincoln scholarship from 1996, Recollected Words of Abraham Lincoln, compiled by Don and Virginia Fehrenbecker, who patiently graded thousands of Lincoln's reported statements according to their degree of reliability. Also in 1996, John G. Nicolai's Interviews and Essays, edited by Mark Michael Burlingame, which published for the first time the notes that Lincoln's Washington secretary gathered for his own biography, and then from 1998, Herndon's Informants edited by Douglas Wilson and Rodney Davis, which likewise, for the first time, sifted, assessed, and published the interviews, letters, and conversations that William Herndon collected for his own Lincoln studies. Because of the discriminating rigor with which especially the collected works and these last three archival projects were prepared, students of Lincoln now enjoy a much surer documentary record than exists, I think, for any other major figure in early American history. The result from all this unusually thorough scholarship is that very many questions about Lincoln's religious faith can now be answered with great certainty. Yet ironically, the better the scholarship has become, the more difficult some basic questions about Lincoln's life and religion remain. In the first instance, Rock's solid documentary evidence and well-validated eyewitness accounts have verified the following facts, at least as far as, his, as historical facts can be verified. Lincoln was exposed as a child to Calvinistic Baptist preaching and during his years at New Salem to a clamor of competing Protestant preachers. In a strange way, he seems to have both absorbed and been repelled by these early influences. In New Salem, Lincoln expressed heretical religious beliefs, perhaps a thorough skepticism. At the very least, he affirmed the universal salvation of all people which represented a serious heresy for both Protestants and Catholics of the day. At the most, he may have written and spoken against the Bible and conventional Christianity with all-out scorn. Witnesses reliably reported some continued expression of such skeptical views during Lincoln's early years in Springfield, 
where he removed in 1837. But at some relatively early point in his time at Springfield, Lincoln began to keep his religion opinions to himself, though considerable dispute exists as to why he did so, whether from a desire not to offend more orthodox clients and voters or from an actual change of heart. In 1846, and for the only time in his life, Lincoln wrote about his faith directly when supporters of his opponent in a race for Congress, the Methodist circuit writer Peter Cartwright, accused him of infidelity. The handbill that Lincoln produced in response, which was not rediscovered until the 1940s, contained these carefully chosen non-committal words. That I am not a member of any Christian church is true, but I have never denied the truth of the scriptures, and I have never spoken with intentional disrespect of religion in general or of any denomination of Christians in particular. After the death of his sons, Eddie, nearly age four in 1850, Willie, age 11 in 1862, Lincoln was comforted by two old-school Presbyterian ministers, both James Smith and Springfield and Phineas D. Gurley, a graduate of Princeton Seminary, who was uh, in Washington, probably read more into Lincoln's behavior than was actually there, but both were also probably on solid ground when they testified that after these traumatic experiences, they witnessed a deepening of Lincoln's faith. Lincoln's relationship with Reverend Smith, James Smith in Springfield, has been the subject of controversy. Smith, a native Scot who had come into the old school Presbyterian church after service as a Cumberland Presbyterian, arrived as pastor of Springfield's First Presbyterian Church in 1849. After conducting the funeral for young Eddie Lincoln the next year, Smith continued to see the family. 1852, Mary Todd Lincoln made a profession of faith and joined Smith's church, and the Lincolns regularly rented a pew thereafter. Smith was also the author, author of a substantial work of Christian apologetics, first published in 1843, whose uh, catchy title well explains its purpose. The Christian's defense, containing a fair statement and impartial examination of the leading objections urged by infidels against the antiquity, genuineness, credibility, and inspiration of the Holy Scriptures, enriched with copious extracts from learned authors. <laughs> and I must say that to the advantage of later scholars, there's about a 10-page uh, table of contents that spells out the argument pretty well. This was a brick bat of a book, eventually available in two volumes in a densely packed one-volume edition. It offered conventional but closely reasoned proofs for the reliability and authority of Scripture against David Hume, Tom Paine, Charles Olmsted, and other skeptics. Multiple witnesses confirmed that Lincoln read at least some of this book. Its detailed arguments were painstakingly logical in the way that Lincoln himself, at least some of the time, pursued his own political and moral reasoning. In early 1867, Smith wrote a long letter to Herndon, which expressed his displeasure at Herndon's published account of the Lincoln's marital strife. That letter included brief comments about Lincoln's religion, including the claim that Lincoln had read and appreciated Smith's long book. Smith wrote, To the arguments concerning Scripture, Mr. Lincoln gave a most patient, impartial, and searching investigation. To use his own language, he examined the arguments as a lawyer who is anxious to reach the truth, investigates testimony. The result was the announcement by himself that the argument in favor of the divine authority and inspiration of the scripture was unanswerable. In the margin of this letter, Herndon scribbled his opinion. Foolish, knows nothing of Lincoln, 
Smith gave Lincoln a book of his. Lincoln never condescended to write his name in it. The truth, the truth about Lincoln's indebtedness to Reverend Smith's closely reasoned apologetics is probably somewhat closer to Smith's affirmation than to Herndon's denial, but only because Smith phrased so cautiously what it was that Lincoln had actually affirmed. And this was, again, Smith's statement. Lincoln, Smith said, concluded, the argument in favor of the divine authority and inspiration of the scripture was unanswerable. Not that it was true, not that it was uh, convincing necessarily, but that it was unanswerable. In Washington, especially after the death of Willie, Lincoln regularly attended Phineas Gurley's New York Avenue Presbyterian Church. He may even have attended the midweek prayer service, though if he did so, he remained in a side room out of the view of the congregation. At the same time, Lincoln did not practice what in the 20th century or 21st century might be called a Christian lifestyle. Philip Schaff, the Swiss-born historian who lived his adult life in the United States, in 1865 traveled to Europe where he presented lectures of considerable subtlety on the meaning of the Civil War. Schaff, who admired Lincoln greatly, especially for the providential themes of the second inaugural address, nonetheless was obviously troubled by the circumstances of Lincoln's death. His comments are worth quoting at length, both for their insight into contemporary European opinion and for what, for what they reveal about Lincoln. According to Schaff, the pious in America are upset that Lincoln was shot to death in a theater. The pious in Germany, that he was shot to death on Good Friday in a theater. In Europe, only infidels neglected observation of Good Friday, while in America, the godly still associated theaters with licentiousness, secular frivolity, and prostitution. Schaff's regret took in both perspectives. In any event, the place and time of this tragedy is very much to regret. Then came his rationalization. But one has to think that Lincoln, on that noteworthy 14th of April, went unwillingly into the theater and only because it was expected by the people. And we must also consider that he probably didn't know that it was Good Friday <laughs> because the Presbyterians, among whom, to, to whom he belonged, as also the Puritans, Methodists, and Baptists, Baptists do not celebrate this day and, in general, the festivals of the church. But Schaff was convinced, as he told his European audience, that Lincoln would never have gone to theater on Sunday, even if theatrical presentations in the United States took place on Sunday, which is not the case. <laughs> Europeans, according to Schaff, needed to keep this mitigating explanation in mind, even if, however, we must reluctantly concede that this circumstance surrounding Lincoln's death has somewhat beclouded the nimbus or the cloud of glory uh, of this patriotic martyr who was otherwise so honorable and so God-fearing. I pause just to uh, note how uh, much pleasure I took in seeing the new statue of John Witherspoon on uh, campus, but also uh, pause to reflect about the, the fate of Witherspoon's second and largest church in uh, Scotland, in, in Paisley, the, the low church, or the law church, which I was privileged to visit a couple of years ago, and, and lo and behold, it's now a community theater. And uh, <laughs> Witherspoon had actually come to the attention of, of the people who were running the College of New Jersey in the mid-1750s, in part because of uh, some strong statements against the appropriateness of the, of the theater. 
Throughout his White House years, Lincoln remained cautious about conventional religious practices. Yet it does seem that he eventually came to value prayer. On more than one occasion, he seems to have told the story of the Quaker women who were discussing the outcome of the war. I think, said the first, Jefferson Davis will succeed. The second asked, why does thee think so? The reply came, because Jefferson is a praying man. And so is Abraham a praying man, was the immediate rejoinder. Yes, said the first, but the Lord will think Abraham is only joking. The joke was poignant because it reflected a truth. Many instances are recorded in diaries and letters written before Lincoln's death where the president either allowed White House visitors to pray with him or actually solicited their prayers. There are also several accounts, though less securely based, and usually written down after 1865 that record Lincoln himself praying. Such matters are about as factual as any such matters are ever likely to be. On the other side are stories that, to the extent that it is ever possible to judge the historicity of a purported event, are bogus. Anne Rutledge did not lend Lincoln her mother's Bible, nor did he circle verses from the Song of Solomon in it, referring to the fairness of my love. The story, published first in the Atlantic Monthly in 1928, came from a medium who was supposedly in communication with both Lincoln and Anne Rutledge. Lincoln almost certainly was not converted in a Methodist camp meeting in 1839, as was first claimed publicly in 1897 by the organizer of this meeting, the Reverend James F. Jacques. From the other side of the theological spectrum, Lincoln almost certainly did not write to Judge J.A. Wakefield during his White House years to affirm my earlier views of the unsoundness of the Christian scheme of salvation and the human origin of the scriptures have become clearer and stronger with advancing years, and I see no reason for thinking I shall ever change them. This document was first produced in 1924 by Joseph Lewis at the annual banquet of the New York's Free Thinkers Society. The judgment of Merle Peterson is authoritative. If Lincoln ever wrote such a letter, it has not been produced, nor is J.A. Wakefield known to Lincoln's collected works. In 1883, a dedicated collector of Lincolniana, Osborne H. Oldroyd, published a book of reminiscences that included an oft-quoted testimony to Lincoln's personal faith. Oldroyd wrote that he had taken the words from a newspaper, which in turn was relying on the purported testimony of a Lincoln acquaintance sometime in 1864 or early 1865. The quotation ran, When I left Springfield, I asked the people to pray for me. I was not a Christian. When I buried my son, the severest trial of my life, I was not a Christian. But when I went to Gettysburg and saw the graves of thousands of our soldiers, I then and there consecrated myself to Christ. Yes, I do love Jesus. No corroborative evidence has ever been found to legitimate this utterance as authentic. William Barton, who himself believed that Lincoln had a substantially orthodox faith, offered an opinion in 1920 that serious Lincoln students have accepted ever since. Barton wrote that he had seen variations on this story, although usually not as elaborate, in newspapers from mid-1865, but none of them included a specific citation. His own judgment was severe. Mr. Oldroyd has endeavored to learn from me in what paper he found it and on whose authority it rests, but without result. He does not remember where he found it. It is inherently improbable and rests on no adequate testimony. It ought to be wholly disregarded. The situation for Lincoln's religion, however, resembles the situation for other facets of his private life. Once solidly verified quotations and narratives have been separated, 
from the almost certainly spurious, there remains a vast array of embellished incidents. These stories are the puzzlers. Many of them can be verified up to a point, but they also contain unlikely or unverified details, and here are a few of them. Lincoln almost certainly did speak about religion with Newton Bateman, the Illinois Superintendent of Public Instruction, in the months between his election in, 19, in November 1860 and his departure from Springfield in February 1861. Yet the story of a fully orthodox profession of faith that Bateman supplied Josiah Holland was too good to be true. When challenged by William Herndon about the veracity of his account, Bateman twisted and turned, but in the end conceded that he embellished what the president-elect had said. It is a fact that Lincoln enjoyed good relations with the Reverend Gurley and that Gurley spoke with conviction about General, Lincoln's general trust in God in the two memorial sermons that he preached after the assassination. Yet the story that Lincoln had arranged, the story that Lincoln had arranged to join the New York Avenue Church upon public profession of faith has never been securely documented. It is probably true that the former Catholic priest Charles Chinnakee prayed with Lincoln in the White House on June 10, 1864, for the two were acquainted from Springfield days, and Chinnakee's presence in Washington can be verified on that day. Chinnakee, by the way, is one of the really uh, intriguing, uh, even bizarre figures of, of Link's Canadian and uh, American history of this, of this uh, period. Uh, he was a, 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 a temperance advocate as a Catholic priest in Quebec, and then kept on being a temperance advocate when he abandoned the Catholic Church and established a mission uh, near Cahokia, Illinois. But it stretches the imagination that Lincoln professed to Chinnakee a fully orthodox faith, as Chinnakee's memoir, 25 Years in the Church of Rome, claims. And it simply beggars belief that Lincoln agreed with the former priest, as Chinnakee has him agreeing, in viewing the Civil War as resulting, as Chinnakee quoted Lincoln, as coming from the intrigues and emissaries of the Pope. There are many other such incidents, most of them the product of late reminiscences. What they show is Lincoln's respect for God, his eagerness to commit the Civil War to divine rule, and his own personal sense of living under the authority of divine providence. What they do not show is a clear-cut profession of orthodox faith. If later interpreters insist on seeing only either an evangelical Lincoln or an infidel Lincoln, the Lincoln who was really there remains invisible. The mature Lincoln of the last Springfield years and his time in Washington appears to have been seriously religious, certainly immersed in the scriptures and not unfriendly to Christ, but he was also not a born-again believer or a, Christian, uh, a committed Christian in modern senses of the term. Once our own conceptions of what it means to be a believer or unbeliever are set aside, it is possible actually to hear the nuanced testimony of those who knew Lincoln best, like his wife, who said shortly after Lincoln's death that he was a religious man always, but not a technical Christian. Still, well-sifted documentary evidence offers a baseline of solid historical conclusions. In the first instance, there is a strong probability that Lincoln's personal belief evolved over time. However much he took in from the faith of his own family, regular and separate Baptists and Calvinists, he clearly embraced advanced views during his years in New Salem. But clear-cut, infidel, skeptical, or painite convictions did not, did not last long. 
By the time Lincoln married in 1842, his religion had become a much more private affair. And later in the 1850s, and especially during his years as president, he seems to have moved closer to orthodoxy. On the subject of Lincoln's religion, it makes a considerable difference when and under what circumstances Lincoln made any particular affirmation of religious belief or unbelief. Yet if Lincoln's religion changed over time, there were also several important continuities. One was his familiarity with the Bible, which began as a youth and continued as he read and quoted scripture to the last. His first major public speech, the Lyceum Address of 1838, ended by quoting a passage from the book of Matthew. In the choice of metaphor for his critical speech in a house divided from June 1858, in his great debates with Stephen Douglas later that year, during cabinet meetings, in order to correct others' misquotations, and in many private conversations, Lincoln cited biblical phrases to make political or moral points. Often this quoting of the Bible was merely instrumental, as in the house-divided speech. But more frequently in his last years, the quotations were not only integral to what he wanted to say, but also seemed to be making a distinctly religious contribution to those convictions. As illustrated most clearly in the incomparable words of the second inaugural that quote from the 19th Psalm. Yet if God wills that slavery continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid with another drawn from the sword, with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. On September 7, 1864, Lincoln responded to a group of African Americans who had presented him with a copy of the Bible with what appears to be his own mature judgment. All the good the Savior gave to the world was communicated through this book, but for it we could not know right from wrong. If Lincoln's knowledge of the Bible stood him in good stead with an American populace among whom the Bible was far, far and away the best-known single book, so also did his commitment to the powers of reason commend him to central values of antebellum intellectual culture. Lincoln's appeal to what he called reason, cold, calculating, unimpassioned reason, which he made in one of his early speeches, remained a principal theme his life long. More romantic themes later modified this all-out rationalism, but Lincoln nonetheless remained committed to the necessity of reason and its power to clarify conundrums, explicate problems, and convince open-minded listeners of the truth. Even more consistent than his rationalism, however, was Lincoln's belief that human affairs and the business of the world were ruled by higher powers. How he defined those higher powers changed over time, but belief that they controlled the affairs of people and nations never wavered. The predestinarian Calvinism of the separate Baptist preachers he heard as a young man, and that may have been inculcated with gentle, gentle effect by his mother, his stepmother, and later the mother of his friend Joshua Speed, did give way to an enlightenment fatalism during his New Salem years. Lincoln's defensive handbill of 1846, in which he fended off charges of infidelity, indicated directly how formally similar those systems of Calvinist and Enlightenment determinism were. He wrote, It is true that in early life I was inclined to believe in what I understand is called the doctrine of necessity. That is, that the human mind is impelled to action or held in rest by some power over which the mind itself has no control 
And I have sometimes, with one, two or three, but never publicly, tried to maintain this opinion and argument. The habit of arguing thus, however, I have entirely left off for more than five years. And I add here, I have always understood this same opinion to be held by several of the Christian denominations. Only once in his life did Lincoln seem to move beyond belief in an overruling general providence to action based on a specific special providence, but it was a momentous occasion. In 1862, after the Battle of Antietam provided just enough good news for Lincoln to move against slavery in the Confederate States, he explained to his cabinet how he was confirmed in this decision. The account that follows is from notes made at the time by Secretary of Navy Gideon Wells. According to Wells, Lincoln said he had made a vow, a covenant, that if God gave us the victory in the approaching battle, he would consider it an indication of divine will and that it was his duty to move forward in the cause of emancipation. It might be thought strange that he had in this way submitted the disposal of matters when the way was not clear to his mind what he should do. God had decided this question in favor of the slaves. He was satisfied it was right, was confirmed and strengthened in his action by the vow and its results. That same month, September 1862, Lincoln penned what has come to be called his Meditation Upon the Divine Will, in which he expressed for his own eyes a profound but most untypical belief in providence. It was profound for repudiating the vaunted powers of human free will that had become so common in antebellum religious and public speech. It was untypical because it contemplated the, the, the possibility that the United States, whether south or north or together, was not, not the central object of God's concern. He wrote for himself, the will of God prevails. In great contest, each party claims to act in accordance with the will of God. Both may be and one must be wrong. God cannot be for and against the same thing at the same time. In the present civil war, it is quite possible that God's purpose is something different than the purpose of either party. And that, I think, is the most unusual theological statement made publicly or made about public events in those years. It is quite possible that God's purpose is something different from the purpose of either party. And yet the human instrumentalities working just as they do are of the best adaptation to affect his purpose. I am almost ready to say this is probably true, that God wills this contest and wills that it shall not end yet. By his mere quiet power on the minds of the now contestants, he could have either saved or destroyed the Union without a human contest. Yet the contest began. And having begun, he could give the final victory to either side any day. Yet the contest proceeds. Later in the second inaugural, Lincoln returned to this same theme that understanding the providential meaning of the Civil War might be very difficult and not very reassuring. As he did so, and as a way of completing the circle of his own life's journey, he echoed opinions that he had read as a youth in the Kentucky Preceptor a half-century before. That widely distributed handbook of Christian morality had affirmed every occurrence in the universe is providential, but to select individual facts as more directed by the hand of providence than others, because we think we see a particular good purpose answered by them, is an infallible inlet to error and superstition. Now Lincoln, 
And the second inaugural said, more eloquently and more boldly, to be sure, much the same thing. The Almighty has his own purposes. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued to his appointed time he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? If the meditation on the divine will from September 1862 represented Lincoln's most profound personal reflection on divine providence, then in his second inaugural, two and a half years later, were heard the most far-reaching reflections on providence ever uttered by a major figure in American public life. But so what? What is accomplished by trying to strip away the myths that cling so closely to the subject of Lincoln's religion? What is gained if we come to the conclusion that Lincoln, who was never a Christian by any ordinary standard, was nonetheless the nation's most profound public theologian? And what possible relevance could there be for religion and public life today from the opinions of someone who knew almost nothing of the religious pluralism, the instant international communications, the global flow of people, goods, and services, the massive expansion of higher education, the unprecedented scale of wealth, the unprecedented scale of poverty, or the unimaginable levels of human destruction that have characterized our own day. The battle for Lincoln's soul goes on, of course, because of, in William Lee Miller's phrase, the immense value he represents in the wars of culture. He is an icon, the icon, for the pivotal event in American history. He is the defining figure of America's golden age, the critical spokesperson of its age of innocence, enlisting him on a particular side in modern political, moral, economic, or religious debate is thus a very big deal indeed. Well, maybe. Fruitful use of Lincoln, as opposed to iconographic use of Lincoln today, might well begin by debating his legacy, rather than simply honoring it. I cannot pursue various lines of critique that are, in fact, in the air today, except to say that critical moral assessment of what Lincoln did is essential for any meaningful appropriation of his le legacy. Others have and are prosecuting that critical engagement. Whether, for example, Eugene Genovese and Elizabeth Fox Genovese, who see in Lincoln's deep commitment to the Whig ideology of free labor the beginnings of a market-maddened devotion to capitalist gain that destroyed a far healthier, organic, cohesive, and moral political economy. Or of Harry Stout, who was asking if Lincoln's pursuit of total war did not run roughshod over just war considerations of use in bellow and so hastened the horrific assaults on basic human rights that have been so characteristic of modern wars or several other voices who see in Lincoln's hesitancy about affirming full civil and social rights for citizens of every color a strong contribution to the nation's ongoing crisis over race, or still others who question other aspects of Lincoln's policy. In my view, such critiques demand to be taken much more seriously by the general public than it has ever been inclined to do. But it is also my view that even if such critiques were pursued systematically, there would still remain a Lincoln legacy of signal importance for questions of religion 
and public life today. For religious believers, Lincoln offers the challenge of one who, while not identifying with any church, took more seriously and at a deeper level realities of faith and life that were supposed to define the more conventional believers in their ordinary lives of faith. American believers in Lincoln's day were a self-confident lot, led especially by evangelical Protestants who were a great majority on the ground and who exerted an even more dominant influence on the religious public sphere, conventional believers had mastered the secrets of the universe. Time after time, they proclaimed that it was a simple matter to discover the will of God in the scriptures. Time after time, especially during the war, they had identified with great assurance what God in his providence was doing. The fact that interpretations of a simple Bible and interpretations of manifest providence had yielded two divided interpretations that the northern God and the southern God seemed quite different, did not, for the most part, undermine the faith of learned theologians or ordinary believers. In their great confidence about knowing the mind of God, however, American believers forgot the lesson of the Kentucky preceptor. Absolute belief in providence and an ability to specify what providence is about are two very different things. Lincoln did not forget. In fact, he may have been driven away from the churches precisely because they made things so simple, because they made God so transparent. Lincoln never stopped wrestling with God. Alan Gelzo's description of this wrestling, if perhaps slightly overstated, has the picture just about right. Gelzo wrote, None of the preachers and devout lay folk who wanted so badly to Christianize Lincoln in death ever penetrated to the real heart of Lincoln's personal religious anguish, the deep sense of helplessness before a distant and, distant and implacable judge who revealed himself only through crisis and death, whom Lincoln would have wanted to love if only the judge had given him the grace to do the loving. The purpose-driven energy and manifest simplicity of the Lord of the universe, who in popular depiction looked, depending upon your perspective, like a busy Whig voluntarist or a rugged Jacksonian individualist, was a different God from the being whom Lincoln faced. Conventional believers, then and now, might well learn from Lincoln to probe further into their own understanding of the deity. Following his lead, they might discover depths within their own inherited faiths that in equal measure disconcert, awe, or delight. They might also discover a broader and deeper platform for the exercise of religion in public life. What was missing immediately after Lincoln's death in 1865 and what has been mostly missing since that time in American public life is Lincoln's unique blend of convictions. The blend of convictions that the United States embodies lofty ideals of human dignity and capacity, that these ideals express crucial aspects of ancient biblical wisdom and modern political experience, that these ideals are important for defining the United States as a nation, but even more for showing how far the nation has fallen short of these ideals, that God's judgment falls rightfully upon every one of us for personal and national malfeasance alike, that national crises must be faced boldly and with careful reasoning, but must also be recognized as direct moral retribution because of how the nation sanctions or tolerates abuses against humanity. 
that beyond all human guilt and goodness, all human achievement and corruption, it is God who rules over the affairs of peoples and nations, and that important as the United States might be in the affairs of the world, the ways of God are always higher, deeper, and wider than any single national purpose. No one before or after Lincoln has affirmed this combination of convictions so forcefully. We have heard many leaders in politics and religion champion the ideals of the nation, but rarely with Lincoln's clear sense that no party, no self-appointed guardians of the public good, no narrowly factional interest group can fully embody the national ideals. We have heard many calls for the nation to repent, but few with the conviction that all stand guilty before God, even the ones who are calling for repentance. We have had many who equate the United States with transcendent good, and more recently, many who, who have identified it with root evil. But we have had precious few who, with Lincoln, have perceived how thoroughly the good and evil intermingle in our heritage, how completely our hope for the public future runs up against the legacies of private and corporate wrong. In the end, Lincoln, a man of deep but unconventional religion, has much to teach believers who espouse more conventional faiths. A harsh upbringing, a melancholy disposition, a profound scriptural understanding of providence, and an existential awareness of life's transitory character gave Lincoln a grasp of reality such as no figure in American public life has ever expressed so clearly or so well. If, as Emerson and many others thought, Lincoln had been raised by providence, the crises of his hour, so might believers, even as they think hard and work hard for the public good today, also pray that providence would raise such leaders to meet the crises of our own day. Thank you very much. to entertain and, if possible, answer. <laughs> so he will recognize you directly and uh, will also repeat the question for the camera. Yes? I'll start with a very simple one. Um, I think it, because Lincoln grew up around uh, Baptists, that it can be known that he was never Baptist. The question is, uh, Lincoln grew up around uh, Baptists. It is known that he was never Baptist. I'm, uh, yes, I'm pretty sure that answer is correct, especially since his sister uh, was at one time baptized, and there was, I think, both contemporary and later evidence to differentiate between the brother and the sister. And these were not just Baptists, however, but these were uh, regular, separate, and even in some cases hard-shell Baptists. So these, were, these were true blue Calvinist Baptists. Right. Uh, don't we also know about Jesse Head, who preached to the, the, the Pigeon Creek Baptist Church in Indiana, I think, uh, and that Head preached abolitionism and also doctrines of rights of man. Yes, it is true, although um, 
as I understand it, and, that, and the question of the influences of Lincoln's earliest religion, I think, are one of the main areas demanding further research. Lincoln, uh, the Lincoln family, uh, Thomas Lincoln, the father and, and the wife and, and children, heard uh, many Baptist preachers, and because of their location in the southern part of uh, Kentucky first and the southern part of Indiana, they heard a mixture of Baptist voices. They, they, they did not get the, the, the Francis Wayland Northern Baptist uh, moral philosophy, but neither did they get the, the, the Southern uh, Furman um, um, Baptist sanction for slavery and, and uh, hierarchical way of life. But they did hear uh, people in the tradition of John Leland, a, a very difficult tradition for modern uh, historians and, and even sympathetic believers to recapture uh, Leland and Head and other uh, separate Baptists particularly, where were intensely Calvinistic and Orthodox, Trinitarian, substitutionary view of the atonement, and Jeffersonian. So, so, so uh, against, against Whig and Yankee and governmental imposition, and also, however, standing for, in many cases, as you said, uh, abolition and the rights of men broadly construed. Lincoln experience of? Right. Uh, the qu a question about what re Lincoln was reading and did not his reading uh, contribute to the complexity of his, his own religion. Uh, exactly. This is actually is one of the great strengths of the, of the, I guess I mentioned the author, Stuart Winger, a new book called Lincoln Romantic Intellectualism and Christianity or something. Uh, um, Winger stresses how, how much, first of all, Robert Burns was Lincoln's favorite poet during his New Salem anti-Calvinist days, how consistently he uh, read and reread Shakespeare, how consistently he read uh, the scriptures, how uh, much of the radical literature, both religious and political, he imbibed in the early uh, New Salem years. And then uh, um, Winger's even tracked down the studies that show which books from the Library of Congress were requested by the Lincoln family during the years of Washington. It's actually a remarkable list. It includes German and French works, which people think that Mary Lincoln probably was reading, but they also include a number of, uh, not I wouldn't say substantial uh, theological studies, but, but a wide range of, of the best sort of, of uh, provocative reading. And the Shake your, your reference to Shakespeare, I think, is particularly... Uh, uh, particularly apropos, because if there's been a debate over Lincoln's religion, there's been even more of a debate over, over Shakespeare's religion. And you can find Shakespeare as a good, sold uh, Lutheran Protestant, as a, as a crypto-Catholic, as a skeptic, as everything in between. And uh, not only did the cadences of Shakespeare uh, inform Lincoln's own prose, but I think sometimes that, that the ambiguity of his moral vision. But it struck me listening to you and thinking about this a little bit more that um, 
it, it would seem that the sort of uh, hardcore secularist Her Her Herndonians, is that what they were Herndonian, yeah, right. Um, would have to take into account and, and respond to um, the discovery of the meditation on the divine will. Uh, if they could claim always that Lincoln simply used biblical references in order to appeal to the religious beliefs of the populace, we've seen that the discovery of the meditation right. the Bible was never published would indicate that there was actually a deeply felt personal belief that uh, would confirm that this was expressed, particularly in the second month. Right. Uh, the, the question is uh, whether the... Um the Meditation and Divine Will, which is published in the collected works, and I'm not exactly sure when it would have first seen the light of day. But it, it, uh, Nicolay and Hay gathered it and labeled it, so they knew about it in the 1880s and 90s, but uh, or maybe even contemporaneously. Would would not um, the discovery and use of the Meditation and Divine Will, something that Lincoln wrote for himself, um, count against the, the, the strictly secular interpretation of Lincoln or the interpretation of Lincoln that sees him using religious language simply for the purposes of, of stroking the uh, voters. Yes, I, I think so, although um, that actually takes me into waters that I'm hesitant to attempt to swim in. Um, the, the, the question of of how Lincoln's political philosophy interacted with his uh, personal religious beliefs is, is a very delicate one. This is one of the, the I think, the tremendous strengths of Alan Gelzo's uh, biography, Redeemer President, which is to um, uh, show how seriously Whig Lincoln was in his um, um, thinking about everything, not not just about uh, political life, and and. Um, those who I read Lincoln as a, a modern liberal, a, a modern, uh, uh, a person of modern sensibility about the privatization of religion, I think can draw upon Lincoln's very serious commitment to Whig uh, principles to say something along the lines that Gore Vidal did in his novels. When Lincoln was using the uh, religious language, he was snickering out of the side of his mouth because of how he was duping the public. I myself do not find that secularist interpretation of Lincoln persuasive, in part because of what a number of scholars, and I, I think I would reference Daniel Walker Howe's splendid book on the, the, the political culture of the American Whigs uh, from a couple of decades ago. Howe and Gelzo and others have shown that, that what looks in modern um, view like a Whig economic policy really was, in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s, a Whig economic plus moral uh, policy. And that for most Whigs, not apparently every Whig, but for most Whigs, that morality was not just um, plucked out of nowhere, but was, was tied pretty closely to uh, not just general religious beliefs, but pretty consistent uh, Protestant beliefs. So yes, I, I think I would actually read... Uh, the, the meditation divine will that Lincoln wrote for himself as evidence of, at least by 1862, uh, a, a, a more orthodox, more substantial religious faith than he certainly would have um, maintained during his New Salem years. But I want to say that with a little bit of hesitation just because of the complexity that has been introduced into the discussion of Lincoln ideology by now what are these tremendous studies on the, on the nature of Whig's, uh, Lincoln's Whig's Big, big, big political thought.
Yes. Well, it's not, right, right. Uh, the, the question is a deeper one than I'm going to have an answer for, but it, it, it's about Lincoln's uh, Quaker background because it was it was his grandparents or his great grandparents who were. Uh, uh, did did Lincoln have any ongoing memory of his of his Quaker uh, ancestry, which? For his public career is very germane since the, the, the Quakers in general had, had solidified their testimony against slavery during the time of the American Revolution. I, I, I can't answer that question, only to know that Lincoln was aware of his uh, great-grandparents and grandparents, which comes out in the little autobiography he wrote 1859 or 1860. Um, I can say, although here I'm lapsing back into the realm of perhaps myth again, that there are a lot of good stories about Quakers coming to the White House and good good exchanges between, uh, like the one on prayer that, that I, I read to you. There are, on, two, on more than one occasion, yes. There was a group of... Right, there was, right, there, there, right. right. The, um, amazingly, and it's hard, just hard to keep in mind, that if you wanted to talk to Abraham Lincoln in 1863, you showed up at the White House at the announced hour, and you got to walk in and... Say your piece. And uh, Quakers, never being particularly backward people, were, were uh, often at the head of the line. <laughs> yes? Uh, one historical and then a kind of normal question. Is, well, what kind of preaching was he hearing in New York Avenue? You said it was old school Presbyterian, but was early, or Princeton, this is not trying to raise the Princeton flag, but what influence did the old school Presbyterian have on him as opposed to the Calvinist Baptist? Was he theologically, sort of, uh, you mentioned scripturalism, but did he have a systematic theological yeah. voice that he listened to? And what did, did he actually comment on this on the sermons? Because my sense is that might be one source. And then I have a contemporary question. Uh, the historical question about Lincoln's, uh, the sermons Lincoln heard from Phineas Gurley at the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church. Um, Lincoln, it is well attested, attended such sermons. The frequency of attendance I don't think is, is as uh, carefully established. Mary Lincoln would have attended more regularly than, than Abraham Lincoln. Gurley is a graduate of Princeton Seminary, um, did have Charles Hodge, Archibald Alexander, Sammy Miller for, for professors. Uh, did Lincoln comment on those sermons? To the extent that I'm aware of, he did not. Um, could there have been something in the old school um, conservative defense of predestination that resonated with Lincoln. I think there could have been. Um, several years ago, I got all excited when I found out about the Gurley-Lincoln connection 
and knew that Gurley was a student of Charles Hodge, whose work I respect. So I actually went after Gurley a little bit and was pretty disappointed when I read the two memorial sermons, one in the White House a few days after the death, one in Springfield at the uh, entombment. They're okay, but uh, I think if you'd had a long lunch before these sermons, you might have fallen asleep. <laughs> There's really nothing... Uh, Charles Hodge, on the Sunday, on Easter Sunday, after Lincoln's assassination, um, gave to the Sunday afternoon conference of the seminarians a much more winsome and profound meditation on providence. Doesn't link, doesn't mention Lincoln. It's just Hodge would do a page of notes for these more informal Sunday afternoon meetings. Uh, but Bill Harris at the seminary had, had rescued it, and I was able to read it a couple years ago. And it re really is a very uh, subtle, nuanced statement about divine providence. But if that, if the, if the sophistication level or the level of that Hodge meditation was a seven or eight, Gurley was a, a three or four. Now your normative question, I'm afraid of. Yeah, I was afraid there'd be questions like this. <laughs> the question is whether uh, the question is whether um, our current president has any of Lincoln's uh, subtlety or ambiguity in, in his references to Providence. And the obvious answer is no. But then I, I I don't know of anybody in American public life who does. What the the the, the sad to me to me even tragic. Um, eventuality after the American Civil War was that um, two things that Lincoln affirmed together went their own ways. Link Lincoln affirmed a very strong trust in Providence and um, an in inability to figure out himself all the time what Providence was about. After the Civil War, it seems to me, American culture is divided between, on the one hand, those who do believe in Providence and know what God is doing, and on the other side, those who don't believe in providence and don't don't think there's any kind of overarching meaning to the universe at, at all. Do you think President Bush would do well to say more or say less? Uh, would President Bush do better to say more or say less? Um, for a number of strange reasons, I've become interested in Canadian re religious history over the years, and uh, I think temperamentally or something. I much prefer the Canadian way where you, you just can never tell from public statements what the private religion is of Canadian prime ministers. Sometimes they happen actually to be very pious, church-going people, sometimes completely secular, but, but you don't know. I would uh, that you asked the question about whether Bush's evangelical faith comes into play, and, and I do think uh, it does, in the sense that uh, among the different current strands of um, Christian tradition in, in North America, 
Uh, evangelical Protestants are those who affirm for personal life the clearest working of God in their own lives. My own um, sort of shtick for quite a few years has been to urge people to make a difference between personal life and public life, evangelicals, and not to uh, undercut the virtues of, say, a self-conscious conversion experience, a self-conscious ministration of the Holy Spirit, but but to realize that public life, and especially public life in a pluralistic society, has um, complexities that might not exist in God's working on individuals. Uh, and I think I would say the same thing about all religions that have that, but in, in the United States, the other religions on offer in the world that would that would have a strong sense of God's immediate presence, are, are, they're not in as much abundance here. So yes, I think actually, uh, uh, give, given my sense of God's existence and very strong belief in divine providence and very strong belief that his ways are, are higher than our ways, uh, less would be more. Right. The question is posed about Lincoln sharing the substantial parts or, uh, of, of the theology of black Americans, um, especially Lincoln's affirmation of the United States as an almost chosen people. So affirming on the one side um, a strong um, uh, inspiration from scriptural values, but on the other side a, a strategic falling short of the, those values. I think this is a question that needs to be researched for the antebellum and Civil War era. I, uh, there certainly is, is a uh, resonance. Uh, I think maybe I would say, without knowing the sources like yourself or David Wills, say that the resonance may be stronger in po uh, relatively modern African-American religious figures in Abraham Lincoln than it might have been with contemporary figures. I say that. Um, on the basis of reading as much as I have been able to find of Daniel Alexander Payne, who had some very interesting things to say about divine providence during the American Civil War, but who, at least the things I've read, did not have the sense of ambiguity that uh, I find in Lincoln's determination of providence. Where Payne retained ambiguity was in his, at least as I recall, the great speech to his own congregation in Washington, D.C. after uh, slavery has ended in the District of Columbia. The ambiguity is about whether the promise of emancipation can be fulfilled 
either in the society as a whole bearing in upon African Americans or among African Americans themselves and taking advantage of it. I've also read the, the, the Frederick Douglass's uh, weekly um, with great appreciation, and yet also I think my conclusion would be that, that when heavy theology is appears in the Douglas Weekly, it is usually from a Caucasian brought in to, to reason along the lines that Douglas is uh, advocating. Douglas's own writing seems to me to be most effective, not in the kind of, of um, uh, kind of painstaking reasoning that, that Lincoln could engage in, but in a, a really interesting use of biblical metaphor, really interesting use of scriptural tropes um, that he uses in his own mind, I think actually many modern readers' minds, quite effectively against what was the more rational, uh, textual defense of slavery that, that, that the magazine, uh, the, the monthly, the weekly uh, addressed itself to. I, I've been actually after, including David, more, more microfilm, more interlibrary loan of, of um, African-American speakers and writers for 1860, 1865, because I, I think this is a very important question that would probably yield some unexpected results if, if people just go after it the right sort of way. Uh, the, the question is, uh, I rely a lot upon what it appears in um, Lincoln's second inaugural address. If I, am I saying anything differently than what uh, Niebuhr said, which was actually, if I recall, the Reinhold Niebuhr statement is a preface to some other, either the Gettysburg Address or Emancipation Proclamation when he, when he writes about at least what I've read on, on the second inaugural. Um, I, uh, I certainly appreciated what Niebuhr had to say about the second inaugural when I uh, read it and then came even more to appreciate it after having studied the, the writings of the professional theologians at the time. And it was through the study of the other professional theologians that I came to, to think that Lincoln was such an unusual religious thinker because the theologians, who, sh who should have had in their own background resources to talk about the complexities of providence, uh, gave them up. This was a point that, that uh, Niebuhr made. I don't think Niebuhr understood actually the history of the antebellum period and of the Civil War. He, he knew, he, he was able to take uh, what are the profundities of the second inaugural and put them to use in the 1830s, 1930s and 40s and do it better than anyone at that time did. Um, I guess I have only minor bones to pick with Niebuhr for not being as interested in the other voices in the Civil War era who are, are interesting in themselves, but also interesting when contrasted with uh, with Lincoln. Yes. Uh, we sort of have this conception of Lincoln as reinterpreting the Declaration of Independence. Right. Uh, I mean, he, he obviously was explicitly in the Gettysburg Address, the right. proposition of all men created equal. And um, in the Declaration, very explicit references to, to nature's God. Um, and I, I'm wondering if. And obviously the discussion of uh, Lincoln's religion is sort of central to 
the, the prism that we now do the declaration of Right. Now, I'm wondering if, if this ambiguity uh, that Lincoln had, um, how problematic is that for how we look at you know, self-evident truths uh, today? Right. That, that actually, the question, the question is, um, uh, has Lincoln's second inaugural become the, 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 the canonical lens through which we look at the Declaration of Independence with its statements about nature's God um, and, and many of the other high, high moral axioms of, of the Declaration? I think that's, that's a better question than I can answer. James McPherson's book on Lincoln and the Second American Revolution, which I read about the same time I read Gary Wills in the Gettysburg Address, so I'm going to mix the ideas up, but, but the, the notion that, that there was not just a reappropriation, but a refashioning of the Declaration in Lincoln's view, I think is, is a very strong argument, and uh, I think that argument un under, underlies some of what were governmental initiatives, even sometimes long afterwards. On the question of religion, I think that you've asked a, actually quite a profound question, because I, I do think that without Lincoln's scripture-laden second inaugural, um, the, the general American interpretation of the Declaration of Independence would be much more historically accurate, which would be to see it as an Enlightenment document coming pretty close to being anti-Christian. And here I would draw on the work of Jonathan Clark in, in uh, Great Britain, who I think has shown very, very clearly that, that uh, sentiments like those expressed in the Declaration of Independence in Britain were considered not just politically dangerous, but theologically heterodox. I think the reason why um, at least some segments of the American public today can look back on the American Declaration of Independence as a quasi-Christian statement has as much to do with the gloss of Lincoln from the Second Inaugural than it does with the, second, than the Declaration itself. Uh, I'm, again, skating over a lot of thin ice for my own self here, but I, I do think that's a, a very important question, and uh, uh, one of the contributions of Lincoln's own intense engagement with the Declaration may have been to make it harder rather than easier to get back at the, the meaning of the, the Declaration. Time for one more question right here. Yes. Did Lincoln have any particular reflections on Judaism? Did Lincoln have any particular reflections on the only thing that I'm aware of, and I, I'd be very willing to uh, pass the mic to uh, people who do this for a living, but uh, uh, was that he did rescind the, um, the the general order that Ulysses S. Grant promulgated in 1862 that that banned that was, was very discriminatory against Jews in one way or another, and when when, when there was an outcry and a protest. Lincoln immediately rescinded that order. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs>